0: Welcome to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. One of the most contentious ideas today regards the nature of justice. Of course, the contentiousness about the meaning of justice and where it is being upheld and where it is being trampled is not a new problem. We debate the justice of everything from the coronavirus lockdown to wars to economic systems and distribution of resources to land rights and abortion and even down to the balancing of toys among children, which leads them to cry out that most familiar of refrains, not fair. Despite having this idea of justice and injustice coming along not long after we learned to speak, and despite also being extremely practiced at pointing out injustices in others, as well as being particularly adept at defending our own actions as just, we don't really know what justice is. Give a definition of justice, and I'm pretty confident most of us could provide a difficulty with your definition. Well, good news. In this podcast, Joel and I are very careful and thoughtful in providing you no definition for justice. Even though the podcast revolves around Plato's Republic, which is a rather long dialogue precisely about justice, nevertheless, if you listen closely, you'll see that we, through discussion about the Republic, present to you something more like a sign or a pointer to justice, just as I think Plato was trying to do. We also give you what might in fact be the opposite of justice, and that is pleonexia. And that's a fun word that we define in the podcast. The podcast includes some discussion of the early books of the Republic, a rather dogmatic claim for me about how to rightly interpret this great dialogue, with the suggestion that even if you've read it, you've probably read it badly. And even if you were taught it, you were probably taught it badly. We talk about whether might makes right. We talk about a ring that makes you invisible, whether we care if God is even around in heaven and the problem of the tedium of immortality. But at the center of our focus is the issue of evaluative outlooks. That is, how do values give shape to our perception? And we see in Plato's Republic an example, we think, of how Plato is offering two ways of approaching justice. There's feverish justice, which is is justice seen through the evaluative outlook of pleonexia. And there's healthy justice, which is justice as seen through the evaluative outlook of, well, the good. It is this conflict of evaluative outlooks that leads to the many difficulties in understanding justice even today. Most importantly, we cannot seem to eradicate pleonexia, which distorts and corrupts our view of justice from our hearts and minds. We arguably even project pleonexia onto God. So all this we cover in a kind of wandering about through the ideas of the Republic with the hope that we'll uncover some spur to wisdom. Now, Wandering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Radio Network. Please check out TacticalFaith.com for information on our organization and how to contact us, our other podcasts, blogs, and even an opportunity to slap Pleonexia in its metaphorical face by tossing us some money. Hope you enjoy the podcast, but not too much.
1: Welcome back to the Wandering Toward Wisdom Podcast. Um, We're part of the Tactical Faith Radio Network. And today is a momentous day for our podcast, because you may notice our sound quality has dramatically improved. Uh, Travis and I have new microphones, and um, we're loving it. And we hope that you love it too, even though that may, uh, you may now realize what our voices actually sound like and not what you thought they sounded like, given the uh, poor quality of microphone we previously had. Uh, With all that said, uh, thanks for joining the podcast today. Um, Today we're going to start down a new path, um, still connected to the evaluative outlook stuff that we've been talking about for months now. But today we're going to start looking at some of the philosophers throughout history who have held to um, who've used something like evaluative outlooks in their thinking. Uh, they may not have called them evaluative outlooks, but their focus was on being able to perceive the world in a certain way, that the way you perceive the world matters um, probably even more than the way you think about the world in and of itself. Um, Cause the way you, you perceive it is comes before how you think about it. Um, and so the goal is for us to see the world rightly, to see the world, um, to perceive what's true and good and beautiful as true and good and beautiful. And today, we're going to start with Plato. I mean, we're philosophers. If we don't start with Plato, I think we have to turn on our philosopher's card. Um, if you if you know our interests and expertise, uh, Travis uh in his dissertation focused a lot on plato so he's going to uh lead us today in a conversation talking about the republic and how that relates to evaluative outlooks and we'll also make some connections to christianity in the midst of all this too so um if you've had an intro to philosophy class there's a good chance you've read at least some of the republic if not all of the republic um and so that this might be a little more familiar to those of you who have taken an intro philosophy class than, than some of the other philosophers that we'll talk about. Um, but we're starting with Plato, and Travis is going to take it over from here. I think
0: to a lot of people, they might see Plato as perhaps one of the uh, most boring philosophers. And therefore, you know, that's why we study him is to try to drive people away from away from philosophy. And the Republic is a large, long book that may seem very boring and disconnected, but I think, I actually think Plato is, uh, is brilliant and he's brilliant because he has sort of a, because of how he thinks about topics and the, and the kind of, uh, discussions and dialogue that he creates, he is, uh, He's actually very, very provocative, and and requires us to really think about things. So let me let me give an example, uh, let me give a couple examples, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Socratic method, and and various things kind of connected with that. So if you've read anything about the Republic, or you know anything about Plato's Republic, you know it's a book about the nature of justice. The Greek word for justice is dikaiosune. If you uh, have ever studied New Testament Greek, you know that that word is generally translated righteousness uh, in the uh, in the New Testament, uh, but it's the same word, justice, righteousness, and so justice ultimately has to do with you know what is it, what is that crowning virtue that brings all the virtues together? So if you're looking for uh, what's that one virtue that if you have it, you have all the others, um, justice, at least for the Greeks, was considered that. And in fact, justice is one of the four cardinal virtues, uh, and the four are wisdom, courage, temperance, or moderation, depending on how you want to interpret that, and of course, justice. And all these topics are covered in in the Republic, but the primary one is justice. The interesting thing about the Republic is the just city that Plato describes, that Socrates describes in his conversation with, with his interlocutors. This is written by Plato, but it's Socrates and his interlocutors speaking. The just city is terrible. No one would want to live there. There's all kinds of nastiness going on in it. Um, there's a couple good things that seemed kind of maybe forward thinking for uh, for Plato's time. But for the most part, the city doesn't seem like that good of a city. There's a number of problems with the city uh, that, that we could go into. Uh, mainly, uh, you see these in Book 5 of The Republic where he's talking about how in the higher classes you can't you can't even know who your brothers and sisters or parents or anything are and it gets really weird and you know even even reproduction and sexual activity is all done through a sort of lottery but nobody's married but the lottery is actually a fixed lottery and in fact the whole society is built upon a noble lie that's supposed to keep everybody in the right places uh and so there's all these kind of complications now, but that's a city and this is meant to represent the soul of a person. And so it doesn't really talk about, uh, uh whether it's talk, whether Plato is really concerned about a city or not is actually, uh, there's some debate in academic circles about whether that, about that, the issue I want to talk about is something that doesn't really get mentioned very much in play, in, in works on Plato. And if you ever read the Republic, you probably just skipped right by this. Without a whole bunch of uh, without much concern and just moved on to the description of the city, and that's a that's a, a little event that takes place in book two, where they start building the city. So book one, Socrates has some interactions with a guy named Polemicus as well as a guy named Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus is just po- Polemicus gives sort of a a reasonable understanding of justice but doesn't quite but doesn't seem to be able to get it right we're going to come back to that kind of idea here shortly so- Socrates does a Socratic dialogue eventually polemicus gives up Thrasymachus jumps in full of rage and anger and has a enraged discussion with Socrates uh, and sits there huffing and puffing for the rest of the book um, <laughs> uh, because Socrates defeats defeats him so to speak in his discussion Thrasymachus's view is that Justice is merely, he says, the advantage of the stronger, which means simply, justice is how those who are in power keep those who are under them under them. So it's sort of a cynical view, but it's the idea that justice is fundamentally what those with the biggest guns say. So if you're really powerful, you can make anything right, and it's right. Why is it right? Because you have the bigger guns. So therefore, might makes right. Which we would say, that's obviously not true until we talk about God. And then we're like, well, yeah, my makes right. (laughs) Sorry, if if you don't understand what I'm kind of poking at, listen to the previous few podcasts, even though you might, actually, we might sound better because you don't actually hear what our voices sound like. So (laughs) we jump into book two. And and by the end of book one, Socrates has convinced, well, has sort of won the argument, begrudgingly on behalf of his interlocutors, that justice is in fact, it's not just the advantage of the stronger. It seeks the benefit of, of everyone, and uh, really, particularly those who don't have power. And it, and in fact, justice makes you happy. The Greek word is eudaimonia, which means something like flourishing. It helps you to flourish, to be just. And therefore, the just person is in fact happier than the unjust person. Glaucon and his brother Adamantus, both these guys are brothers of Plato they they interject and say we don't want to just yeah we believe you but we don't believe you so they're sort of saying uh I believe help help my own belief I want to believe that justice is good but i can't
1: well I mean i i guess I take a little more cynical view on on them and i I think they're like well that sounds good but there are some extra things that I would really like to, for to have be a part of justice.
0: Can we work those into the city too? This is really fascinating for us to think think through as Christians. By the way, L- let me let me set up the gauntlet that they threw before Socrates before they start building the city, and then they start asking for cake and prostitutes, which you know <laughs> you can understand why. So, but but they the first thing I mean, what they want to know is, does justice really make you happy? Because there are. There are three kinds of reasons why you might consider something good, right? You might like it because you don't like it itself, but because of what it gets you, you can like something for itself and for what it gets you. And you can like something for itself, but not care about what it gets you. So does it make you happy because of the results? So if you have a job you don't like, you 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 still consider the work good, but it's painful to do, but it gets you stuff you want, namely money. There's things that you like, both in itself and for what it gets you, and then there's things that you like in themselves without regard to the results. And their view was, if we, if you're saying that justice, in fact, makes happy, we need to take away any, any, uh, result, because they claim that people are good. And remember, justice is another. You can also interpret the word justice as righteousness. In fact, some some uh, translations of the Republic actually translate it righteousness. People are righteous or people are just not because they like justice or like to be righteous. They're just because of what it gets you. And so what they do is they say, well, let's imagine two people, one of whom is perfectly unjust, completely unrighteous, but is understood. Everyone believes this person to be completely righteous. So they get all the benefits of, of people believing they're righteous, including with the gods. Right, and they have a view that you know this this person there is rich and so can make all the sacrifices, and so gets you know the the cush place in heaven. Um, uh, then we have a fully just person who has a uh, reputation for being unjust. No one believes this person. No one trusts. No one trusts them, and is in the end, uh, even when they die, they they die impoverished, and so the gods don't like them because gods like to be paid off, as gods of power do. And they say, can you tell us that the the second guy, the guy who is perfectly just but gets nothing, is happier than the guy who is perfectly unjust but gets everything? And Socrates says, that's a tough one. I do believe the one who is perfectly just is in fact happier, but you've thrown down a, a pretty serious gauntlet. I mean, this is like Labyrinth with David Bowie at the end sort of problem. And okay. so we need to work our way through this. Uh, and then, you know, you get the, the remaining books. And so they say, okay, well, if we're going to look at justice, what does justice look like in a person? Well, that's hard to tell. Let's talk about justice. Let's get a macro vision and look at justice in a city. So they start to, quote unquote, build a city, right? And they're just talking through it, right? They're just building a city in speech, so to speak. They talk about all the different parts that seem to be necessary for a city. And then they start describing what the city looks like. And it's going to be basically like everyone's sort of doing what they're best at. They're trading with one another because it's hard for you to make shoes and mend your boat and go fishing and care for the crops and build a house, you know, to take care of all these different things. So everyone kind of focuses on what they're best at and then they trade with one another. That way everyone's making great stuff. Socrates then says, where do we find justice? And they're like, well, you know, how are these people to live? And he, he says, you know, they're, well, they're going to eat like this. They're going to eat very simple diets. There's not really going to be many desserts except something like ro- roasting nuts on the fire and maybe having a little bit of wine, but not too much. Glaucon then interjects. He says, this is sort of a paraphrase, but it's roughly a paraphrase. I mean, he, say, he says, first of all, he says, Socrates, if you're going to feed pigs, if you had a city for pigs, isn't this how you'd feed them? And what he means by that is, you know, pigs, you just throw anything to them. They'll eat anything. So you give them whatever food, and they're happy no matter what. But human beings, we need delicacies. We need couches, right? He hasn't even given them couches, right? They're laying on like myrtle bows, and so um, we need proper couches, proper desserts, you know, Wi-Fi connection, uh, broadband, Netflix, cars with air conditioning. We need modern comforts. Otherwise, we can't let li- we can't function in a city like this. And Socrates is like, so you're talking about a city, a city with a fever. Okay, well, we could talk about a city with a fever. But but to me, I believe the city I was describing beforehand was, in fact, the real city. And so, um, in fact, I can read this. He says, uh, this is taken directly from Republic Book 2, uh, 372E, if you know what all that stuff means, you can find it. But Socrates says, all right, I understand. It isn't merely the origin of a city that we're considering, it seems, but the origin of a luxurious city. And that may not be a bad idea, for by examining it, we might very well see how justice and injustice grow up in cities. Yet the true city, in my opinion, is the one we've described, the healthy one, as it were. But let's study a city with a fever, if that's what you want. There's nothing to stop us. The things I mentioned earlier in the way of life I described won't satisfy some people, it seems. But couches, tables, and other furniture will have to be added. And, of course, all sorts of delicacies, perfumed oils, incense, prostitutes, and pastries. That's how I was describing my cities. You got to add the prostitutes and the pastries. (laughs) By the end of this next page, in fact, within a couple of paragraphs, the city's already at war with their neighbors. Because the land will not supply all the desires these people have. And there's a central word here that keeps coming up throughout the Republic. Uh, The Greek word is, well, the way it's brought into the English is the word pleonexia. And this came up over and over again in the conversation with Thrasymachus. In fact, near the end, when Socrates was kind of doing the finishing touches uh, of killing his, his view that justice is merely the advantage of the stronger. Socrates talks about trying to outdo, outdo, outdo this kind of language. And and the idea is that the one who is just, the the right thing, the virtuous thing, never seeks to outdo the virtuous. It seeks to simply be virtuous. It's always the unjust or the lack of virtue one who's always trying to outdo the others. And and yet Glaucon here talks about more and more and more, and it comes out throughout. And the word pleonexia appears, this, this idea of wanting more to outdo keeps coming up. And so what Socrates what just said in the first book but one of the Republic is Pleonexia and justice are opposites. Glaucon has said, yeah, I want a just city, but can we throw a little Pleonexia in there? And Socrates is like, well, you're asking to add, you want a glass of water, but you want a little oil added in. And then you want to see a clean glass of water. Well, let's give you a glass of water with oil in it and see if we can get a clean glass of water, right? I mean, oil and water don't go together very well, just like Pleonexia and justice. So that And that transforms the rest of the book. If you read the rest of the book or the rest of the Republic, you'll see times where, where they're pushing against this pleonexia, where they're trying to control it, but it's still present in the city. And so the city develops a structure. It goes to war. It develops a, a whole hierarchical structure that isn't present in the in the true city, uh, which means the justice that you see in the rest of the Republic, you should understand it as a just justice with a fever. It's justice that is destined to become more and more unjust, which is in fact how Socrates describes it in book eight. It inevitably falls into greater and greater injustice. So given that, what does that have to do with
1: evaluative outlooks?
0: Well, I suppose I have to answer that.
1: I was going to ask you that.
0: Well, uh, there's a few different, there's a whole bunch of different things we can say here. But the first thing is that when you're, when you're reading the Republic, when Socrates gets to the point where he's described the healthy city as much as he can, what he's trying to do is he's describing something. The thing about that city is it it's not clear to us how it functions. right? He hasn't yet given us a hierarchy. He doesn't say who's in charge, for example. Well, how can any community function based on fair trade if we don't know who's in charge? If there's not someone there to check the weights and make sure people are treating one another well and not stealing stuff and killing each other and so on and so forth. How can it in fact function that way? Well, it's, it's it's easy for us to imagine in one way, because we have a lot of Disney movies in our head, Uh, or maybe (laughs) you've seen the movie avatar, right? Where everyone's running around and loves each other and they're tall and blue, but that's, that's just not how life functions. That's not how actual people live, right? We have these fantasies, but it comes down to everyday life. When you're actually working a job and you're thinking about how much how much how much am I going to charge this person, your goal isn't to be fair. Your goal is to get as much as you can. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that other people's goal is to get as much. I'm saying yours. Your goal is to get as much as you can. Now you want to be fair because you might get caught, right? And this is the same, this is the thing with just you will be just because you need the reputation of justice in order to keep getting clients. But man, if you could If you could get away with it, why not add 10, 20 bucks? I'm saying this as a, you know, one of my jobs as an independent contractor. Why not grab an extra 20, 30 bucks? I mean, they don't know. This person doesn't know anything about
1: the problem. Uh, This is sounding eerily like the ring of Gyges.
0: It should sound exactly. Maybe I should bring (laughs) that up, right? Because the ring of Gyges is a really interesting story that Glaucon tells to describe why, We are just because, because of the benefits, right? This is what we talked about where Glaucon and Adamantus threw this kind of gauntlet out before, before Socrates. They said, listen, people are only just because of the benefits. And this is, this is what's troubling for Christians, right? Are you righteous? Are you justice? Are you justice? That'd be weird. Are you just because, because of the benefits in this world? Well, no, but we we seek the benefits in another world, right, or another life, or something like that, right? And so we're just because we know God is watching. What that means you're just just for the benefits, right? Are you just because you love it? And the whole issue is uh, the ring of Gaige is a sort of like a hall pass, right? Uh, I try to give that comparison to when I when I would talk to my Christian students. I say, "What if God gave you a hall pass?" He said, "Listen, for the next." Six months, I'll hold you, I will not hold you to account for anything that you do. Which it seems like forgiveness by Jesus is a hall pass, but let's if we (laughs) understand it that if you understand it in a certain way. So, ring a guy, Jesus guy is running around and he and there's an earthquake, you know, he's he's like a, a poor shepherd. There's an earthquake, the earth cracks open. He looks down there, there's this giant, you know, giant looking uh dead guy or whatever, and there's a ring on him. And he's like, he pulls the ring off and he puts it on his finger. He's like, sweet. And for some reason it fit him, even though it was on a giant. So it fit him and he, uh, uh, this just sounds sort of like Lord of the Rings, by the way. And so he, uh, you know, he goes back to the council and they're talking about sending basically their taxes to the king and uh, he's fiddling with the ring. And when he, when he takes the setting and he turns it toward himself, he goes invisible. Now he doesn't notice. I mean, he eventually notices that it's doing this because every time it turns it toward himself, nobody people act as if he's not there and he's he tries it out fiddles with it a few times like whoa he got himself onto the uh the group that was to go meet with the king he used the ring to seduce the king's wife which is interesting i don't know how a ring making you invisible could help you sed- unless you look like us um but <laughs> he uses it to 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 seduce the king's wife and then kill the king and then take over the kingdom and the idea is that if you were given a ring of Gyges, that is something that kept you from having to face any of the consequences of your actions. What would you do? And Glaucon's claim is you do anything. Well, that's what happens, right? I mean, you know, let's think of a stereotype, right? A woman walks into an auto auto repair shop. Do they get charged the same amount?
1: In a good auto repair shop, they do.
0: And a good, yeah, and a just one, they will. And you know, you know, maybe consider if you go to your normal auto repair shop versus if you're on a trip and you're stuck in the middle of nowhere, and they know you're never gonna come back. They don't care. They know you're. You know, they know that you live in wherever you live in Indiana, and you're somewhere in Arkansas. You're not gonna come back here to get your auto, your car, fixed again. What do they care how you feel? And so. Uh, course you know you could put a review on the internet these days but uh you're more likely to be taken advantage because the the you're not facing the consequences and the and the when we get into circumstances where we don't face the consequences like when you're alone with your phone and nobody's around you act differently than if you're in public with your phone right that's a reference to something probably none of you have any issue with uh unless you're if you're Diogenes the dog, then you act the same in public as you do while you're alone. But that's, that's another philosopher we might never talk about. So, (laughs) so this idea is that, is that what, what Glaucon understands is that what, what truly makes us happy is the possession of more stuff. The getting of desserts, the reclining on couches and so on and so forth. And what Socrates keeps saying is, no, you don't understand that what makes you happy is not the the acquiring of things external to yourself, but the reordering of yourself in such a way that the, that life itself becomes beautiful. Now it sounds like, well, where did I get that from the Republic? Uh, I'm pulling from a lot of Plato, but the idea is this is if, how can this society, so let's look at that original society, right? We have a bunch of people the healthy city. We have a bunch of people working, doing their own thing. They're trading with each other well and they're eating I mean, do they have desserts? Well, sort of, but it's not super fancy ones that make you sick and give you cancer, which is the kind I like. Do they do they have a chance to relax? Yes, but they he says he goes throughout he says they only they only have as many children as they can handle, right? So they're not just like it's not like some sort of hippie commune, right, where they just, you know, free love, you know, right? They're thoughtful in how they do things. They're thoughtful in how they eat. They they don't have any more clothes than what is necessary for the work they need to do. So he even talks about them working naked in the summer, and uh, and then wearing adequate clothes in the winter, right? And you, whatever that you think of the weather in the in the Asian Asian Peninsula. And the idea isn't Plato wasn't trying to be some sort of freak. The point is, is that well, if the weather's nice in the summer, you don't need clothes, right? It's a waste of money. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you probably say maybe they could at least wear shorts or something uh, and women should wear a top. But th- the idea is that it's it's very, very simple. And people, why do people trade with one another appropriately? Because they're not out to get more. The pleonexia element is gone. It's the It's the constant desire. It's the belief that if I get more, I'll be happy. I just need a little bit more. The problem is And this is why, this is why Plato is so hard to understand. And he's misinterpreted by, I think he's misinterpreted by most people, but even including scholars, but don't tell anyone I said that, um, he's misinterpreted by most is is because he's trying to tell us, listen, it's not, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to get the right answers, get more stuff. You're trying to get all this stuff. But what Plato's trying to do is trying to transform the way that you think, the way that you're perceiving. And so the only way this, this healthy city could function is if each person truly understood that getting more doesn't make you happy, but what's the perception of the world that believes that getting more makes you happy? Maybe I should ask you that, Joel, what's, what is it about us that makes, what is our evaluative outlook? I would say that causes us to think that the, the possession of more things makes us happy that that's actually the essential element of what makes us happy.
1: Well, I, I think it's an element of comparison. I mean, we we live our lives in a way that instead of focusing on who, you know, from a Christian standpoint, who we are to be in Christ, we're more concerned with how do we compare to everyone else? Um, you know, e- even sometimes if you think about, you know, if we, if we really want to Christianize it, sometimes we, we play the virtue game where it's like, I have more virtue than, than other people and that makes me better, but that's missing the whole point of what virtue is about. Virtue isn't about how do you stand in a relation to everyone else? Virtue is about your pursuit of becoming like Christ. And so when your focus is not on, on the good, on Christ when your focus is looking around you and, and trying to play some comparison game, trying to get ahead of certain people um, and and being okay with being behind other people, I guess you could say too um, that's, that's a toxic mentality and it doesn't just have to be material things or money. It can be, like I said, virtue. It can be all kinds of things, but what, what Plato is, is getting at is, Is that that comparative mindset, that wanting to be recognized, that uh, finding your value in in what happens um, and how people how you're perceived um, when that's where you find your value, you're you're not you're going to be incomplete. Your, Your happiness, your flourishing is going to be incomplete at best.
0: Yeah. And I think this, this is really good because if you think about the nature of comparison, I think that element, I mean, this is what pleonexy is all about. Pleonexy is, is wanting to outdo, to gain more. I mean, you're not only, you're not just comparing yourself to, to other people. You're also comparing yourself to, to what you were previously. Like, is my bank account bigger than it once was? And you could go through this whole list of, of, of how that, of how that works. Um, and I, I want to throw in some terminology that we used before: the whoness and the whatness, or the actuality and the potentiality. But think about if your actuality is you as a person, who you truly are, the way that you relate to what you are—that is your body, your your the things that you own, the way you're, you know, so on and so forth. You're looking to get what is required. Not only to maintain your potentiality, but even to enjoy, for your potentiality to flourish and be healthy and even find some enjoyment, right? But all that enjoyment is for the sake of who you are. And if you're living for the sake of who you are, your, relate, your, your primary, at least according to the Christian perspective, your primary focus is going to be the pursuit of relationship loving relationship, the kind of relationship that doesn't relate to other people's potentiality or to their whatness, right? That, so it's not relating to their money, not relating to their bodies, not relating to all that kind of stuff, but it's relating to fully to who they are. And so even if you're relating to them with regard to these other elements, it's always for the sake of who they are. So whether you eat or drink, whether you purchase something, whether, whatever you do it all Well, for the glory of God and the glory of God is found in the relationship of love. And so when we image God's glory, when we reflect God's glory, we ourselves are in relationships of love. And so it should all be for the sake of that. Now, if I live according to my potentiality, it's almost like I keep thinking of that guy. uh, If you've seen Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, I have kids, (laughs) so I've seen this movie. Uh, It's sort of a it's a bizarre movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm really uncomfortable with the kids spray on shoes that never came off his feet. I just don't understand what's happening with his feet. And that disturbs me. (laughs) I have had nightmares about that kid's feet. But anyway, uh, but there's, there's a mayor there who's small. Right. At the beginning, he's very small and he keeps eating and eating and eating. And the representation is of this guy whose power he just wants to. And that's what he keeps saying. Everything is going to be big. The word on it, the word that he keeps repeating is big. He, he wants to be big. He wants this to be big. This is going to be a big thing. Big, 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 big. And he's eating so much food that by the end, he's actually, you know, very, very big. Uh, that's a man living fully in his potentiality. He's not concerned about the who. He's not concerned about the actuality of those around him. He's he's just trying to get big. He just wants to be bigger. And you think, I mean, let me put it another way. This is a guy obsessed with pleonexia. Now, most of us are not that bad. We recognize there's something bad about that. But most of us aren't at that level of bad, right? We're not that pleonexiad, right? But it's kind of sprinkled through everything that we do, right? And so... Uh, potentiality is when you live for the sake of what, what makes you up, so to speak, then you're living for getting bigger. You're living for the sake of it. You're trying to get more, 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 more. And so the difference between the healthy city and the feverish city is this understanding of living in actuality. And living in actuality is you know, to put it in more plat- platonic terms is seeing things correctly. It's seeing if I'm going to go real Plato here, seeing the forms of things, the good, the good with a capital G seeing the beauty with a capital B such that you're not. In fact, it's a blindness to the good and the beauty that causes you to want more of these echoes of the good and the beautiful, right? If a food tastes good, the reason why you're trying to get more of it is because you're trying to, you arguably, I think this is arguably Plato's view is because you're trying to cram more good in yourself, but you're missing what the real good is. You're being blinded by what's close and what's obvious and not allowing yourself to be, to really have the kind of contemplation of peace and dialectic in his view that, that drives you up toward the, toward what is truly good, what is truly beautiful.
1: What, what one way to think of it is: this tasty food is supposed to help you help point you to see the, the capital G good, and the goodness that you experience in that food point is to point you in that direction. And the problem is when you you know sometimes when you get caught up in that food, it's like you're get you're caught up with the road sign rather than where the road sign is pointing you to.
0: Right, that's a really good way to put it, and in fact, it's it, it echoes the speech that Socrates gives in the Symposium, uh, where he's actually giving me a, what he learned from what he claims to be his teacher Diotima, uh, who says that that love leads us up toward, and the the work the word for love that she's using is the word eros, right? Where we get our word erotic, so it's this passionate love, right? It's just. Very passionate love that was that's very closely connected with sex, but can also kind of include other things. But it's the kind of love that feels the most out of control. She says, "If eros leads a right, if this love leads a right, you will start with loving some beautiful thing, a particular thing. She actually says a beautiful body, and you'll beget beautiful ideas from that, right? So you think about an artist and a muse, yeah, they, you know they have some sort of whatever, a mistress who's a muse or whatever, right? But that sort of echoes this." Um, or you have a scenery, a, a setting that's beautiful, right? If I'm going to do writing or if I'm going to do my thinking, I like to sit here by the window and look out upon the, you know, the green of the university or this pond or whatever. Um, uh, and you begin with that. And then you begin to work your way up until you get to the forms themselves. But you, you, ha- you end up recognizing that all these things are pointers. And that's not that they're not beautiful. It's that, it's that, they're, they're trying to take you beyond themselves, which is why people who are obsessed with, with simply the possession of physical, physical beauty or the possession of some kind of physical goodness in particular, they, they, they get more and more and more of it. And then they become dissatisfied with it. It's never enough. It's like, I can't, now I need to, I'm going to go try it with this body. Right? So you see these people who are like, you know, movie stars who are marrying the most beautiful sought after everyone wants to look at him, movie stars and everyone's beautiful and perfect because their whole life is really about looking beautiful and perfect. And, you know, they're divorced after six months. Why? Because that beautiful and perfect isn't enough. Well, it's, it's what they think they're going to find someone that's more beautiful and more perfect. Well, no, the point is they're, they're looking in the thing. And so they keep trying to gobble up more, Pleonexia, Pleonexia, com- I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. And because of that, they never they never find peace and rest. They never find happiness in where they are. And they always need more stuff. But that more stuff is never enough. And they just get emptier and emptier, right? The reason is, is because they're not looking at the signposts. They're not looking at them as signs pointing. They're looking at, them at the thing as the thing in itself. This is what will fill me. And the difference between the feverish city, which has a hierarchy, has a police force, has a military force to go at war with their enemies, has pastries and prostitutes and guns. The difference between that and the healthy city, which need not go to war and nobody would ever attack them because it doesn't look like they have anything anyway. And they are at peace with one another. And there's no hierarchy is the initial people are living for the sake of the good. And they manifest the good in, in what they're doing that. They find, you know, if I'm fishing, I'm doing it. I'm seeing the beauty and the goodness and I'm doing an excellent job because I love to produce things that reflect the good. And I'm I'm looking at my neighbor who maybe had a bad, you know, bad couple of months. You know, they had to hide out from the coronavirus longer than I did. And so I give them a little extra fish for the same price or I reduce the price because what I care about is the good. In the city of Pleonexia, I'm going to get every, I'm going to extract everything I can from you. And i need i need a police force and a government force to keep me under control yeah you know, i need regulations and laws and so on and so forth what's the difference well the difference isn't the, the difference is not how much how how much free reign you have the difference is that the former and i say this over and over again the difference is that a former city in fact has a vision of the good such that they don't believe the gaining of more is going to fail them because the gaining of more won't fill you. If you have a sufficient amount, plus maybe a little bit to celebrate with, right, so you can. it doesn't mean you have to eat just enough to stay alive. It's not about trying to live with a minimal amount, it's about trying to have the right amount to enjoy yourself, but never be obsessed with the with getting more and more and more, to actually look after the good. So the difference isn't how much they're getting, the difference is what they see, or how they perceive. And so they may look upon the, and it's like you said right at the beginning, perception always precedes, perception always precedes how you think about the world.
1: So if we think about as Christians, what does it mean for us to pursue righteousness, to use the the other translation of, of the, the term, um, and not pleonexia. Maybe it might be helpful to, for us to identify some ways in which pleonexia kind of pervades our our thinking, um, in ways that we may not recognize it as such. We may may think that we are uh, doing doing good, but really we are we have some pleonexia driving um, driving our desires that we we want to think are are good. If we think about so much of, uh, the Christian subculture. Uh, so, you know, you think about churches and, um, when you meet someone who goes to a a different church, you know, one of the, it seems like the two questions that come up first, at least in my experience is what denomination and how big is your church as, as though bigger is automatically better or then there's other, there's, there's some people who would actually say bigger is worse. So the smaller your church, the the better your church is, but right. it's still, it's still a pleonexia kind of mindset because it's all about comparison. It's, it's not focused on the good. It's focused on some sort of comparable standard that you're interacting with other people. Even if we think about the ways we pursue or that we, we like to talk about salvation um, and our pursuit of salvation, it's like, um, you know, we, we want to make sure, you know, it, it, when, when we talk about salvation, sometimes it feels like Christians are saying, it's not just enough for me to focus on becoming like Christ and, and what does that mean for my salvation um, or, the, or even the corporate salvation of, of the body of Christ. But it's kind of like it's it becomes important for me to be able to draw a line that says I'm in and you're not. When we when we so start to draw lines on who's in and who's out. And when in reality, I forget which thinker said it, but re- in reality, we're, we're all beggars trying to tell the other beggars where to find food. And so if your goal is you found you're a beggar and you found food and you want to to help other people find the food that's going to look very different than if you're concerned with making sure I get my food and get as much as I want and making sure that I am somehow elevated because, you know, these beggars, these other beggars don't have my food now. And while I hope they get food too, my goal isn't to help them get the food that I got. It's I've drawn a line and I have to maintain that line for the sake of my preservation.
0: Yeah. That's like, that's like the experience of going forward and accepting Christ about, you know, every year at youth camp, (laughs) there's a, there's a goal where it becomes, I mean, I don't have anything wrong with people like recognizing how they faltered, how they've, how they've walked away, how they've turned away. And I don't have any problem with people going forward over and over and over again, have at it. Um, you know, I did. And, and, uh, it's it's I think there's an important, the act is an important recognition of, of. Of the significance of following Christ, Never because these events sort of matter in our lives that they're markers, uh, but the thing is, there's a point where you can become so obsessed with your own salvation that you don't realize that you're not saved for yourself, right? You're saved to be a bearer of the kingdom. So get out there and bear the kingdom, right? And that can be as simple as stop treating your siblings or your parents or your kids or your coworkers like garbage. Start showing love, love for them. Uh-huh. And and why do we show them? Why do we treat them like garbage? Because we're obsessed with getting more for ourselves and we hate when we seem to lose something. And this relates to salvation. This this is actually really really good news for the way we view salvation too, right? So there's I have mentioned this uh, probably I probably mentioned before on this podcast, but I have this student who did one of the most interesting like sets of interviews. Now, granted, he didn't interview thousands of thousands of people, but he interviewed a good number of them, and he kept asking them about about heaven, right? And if you you know if you go uh, I mean, he was, he was actually trying to talk about happiness, but he had always came down to heaven because we're in the South and everyone's a Christian, right? Anyway, uh, so he always came to the came to the point where he started asking them all the question, you know, if you if you go to heaven without Jesus, you know, w- would you take it? I mean, he didn't ask, I forget exactly how he asked the question, but it was something like that. And most of them ad- agreed, they said, except for one one old lady, uh, most of them said, "Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I want to get to heaven." One old lady said, "If Jesus isn't there, it isn't heaven." And she got it right. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, is that we look at heaven as a way of getting stuff. You know, get avoiding the pain of hell, getting the pleasures that heaven has to offer. That the stuff that we didn't get now, but now we get in heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we gave it up now by getting up on Sunday mornings and giving a little bit of money to the church, but but if even if you think about that, I remember when I was young, he- heaven terrified me because uh, let's say I get to do everything I want to do in heaven, you know, for a hundred years, two hundred years, a thousand years, maybe even maybe even ten thousand years, I could find happiness in trying out the new things, right? But eventually, it all becomes more, right? and this is the philosopher's idea of the tedium of immortality. Like, would you even want to go even if you got to do anything you wanted? And you can even add the Muslim idea of heaven in here, unless you're a woman. That's too bad, I guess. But you you're even if you add all these like different things that we would consider essentially sinful, even if you got to, I don't know, you were doing cocaine, sleeping with a with whoever you wanted to sleep with, skydiving, uh snowboarding, going home into a mansion, you know, walking on goal. Think about the the most what exaggerated kinds of pleasures you could have. There would come a time you'd be like, okay, I'm done.
1: So spoiler alert, the good place, the the most recent season dealt with this. And while there were lots of good things in the good place, I felt like this was one of those uh, times when they just kind of dropped the ball at the end and they lost some of their self reflectiveness. um, Because the thing that they decided needed to be added to heaven in order to um, make it a a place worth living was that you had to be able to say, okay, I'm done. And to kind of go off into some other existence or whatever uh, it, it wasn't clear exactly what it is, but you're to kind of end your existence. Um, the only one of the main characters, the humans that didn't do that was, was someone who, I won't say who, but they they chose to do things that uh, to try different things and to grow in different ways. And this person decided that they wanted to become an architect because they felt like they could help help design worlds, design situations for people to to grow morally and to grow as as people. Um, and you know that that. To me, that spoke such, you know, so str- strongly um, as to the importance of of heaven not being a selfish place, of heaven being a self giving place. Um, even after, you know, even once we've done all the work to get the things that we deserve, no, that that's missing the point of heaven. The point of like. If, 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 if you have to be self-giving to get to heaven, why should you expect heaven to be anything but the self-givingness that allows you to experience heaven as heaven?
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think part of the, part of the goal of it, part of the thing of heaven is that it's not, you're not just self-giving. You're, you're among those who are self-giving and you're among, you're among particularly the three who are self-giving. Right. right. And so this idea, and this is the beauty of it, is if you think about, you know, I want all this food and I want this mansion and so on and so forth, that all wears out. But the one thing that we never tire of are loving relationships. The one thing that can ever grow are loving relationships, particularly with the infinite one, right? Mm-hmm. Three in one right? There's no, there's no end to this. And so again, when we think about heaven, we're always thinking in terms of our potentiality our whatness. I want to feed my whatness, right? I want to get my pleasure. I want to fulfill this desire and this desire and this desire and this desire. And if you think about that, you know, one of the things I want to do is eat lots of good food. Okay. Well, that, that will only be interesting for so long, but what, what about eating good food among great friends? Well, now that's a That's an entirely different thing. I can never tire of of great conversation, great camaraderie, learning about one another, growing in love together over some good food, right? I mean, that's that's just icing on the cake. And so the issue is that heaven is about the actuality, about becoming truly who we are and being in true relationship with the one who is. And we know, I mean, this is obvious. From the beginning of your understanding of Christianity, you understand this. But then we keep devolving into Glaucon Pleonexia. Well, I mean, can we really be happy with that? I I need my desires fulfilled. Can we get some desserts? Can we get some pastries and some prostitutes? You know, can, can, we, can we get that? Well, I mean, that's not what it's about. Right. But if you're looking for justice like that, righteousness like that, then, you know, maybe look to the world's view of righteousness which right. is never enough. And if you, th- and if you think that's enough, you're going to be sadly disappointed. Just like if you think Plato's talking about justice, when he's talking about feverish justice, you're going to be disappointed, right? Cause yep. it's not very good. It's yep. based on a lie. It involves military police force. There's all kinds of nastiness. Everything's being self. And by the way, what it basically is the way I try to describe it in a person is it's the rational mind using shame to control the desires which is how most of us function, right? We we know what we're supposed to do. We don't do it. And so we try to guilt and shame ourselves into being good. And that is a necessary response. That's necessarily the response to the laws that we know are right and good when we're living in pleonexia, guilt and shame. The good news is you don't need to be that way. Why? Mm-hmm. Because Christ himself, Christ who is our life has appeared. Amen. Right, look upon the good and love it, and so with 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 right love, and this goes back to our series on uh, on the seven deadly sins too. But with the right ordering and the right love, you don't need all the laws, you don't need all that. You've gone beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, right? You know, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you've gone beyond that because you're loving God and loving neighbor. Of course, love has to be understood rightly too, because it's relating to the actuality. Not simply affirming potentiality like, you know, contemporary view is like loving is letting people do whatever they want, which is a weird way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. So that's some Plato. If you understand Plato this way, you'll read them rightly instead of in the silly way that most people read them. Um, at least according to my view, yeah. <laughs> Plato. You'll begin to understand it, and you'll see some of the depth here. And you realize that all throughout this, even in Socrates' dialogues, he's always using this image of the good to call people's definitions and clear claims about what is virtuous to account because he sees something. He can't quite say it, but he he knows it's over there, which that gets down. That's part of a sign that he's talking about evaluative outlooks. Because it's something that's difficult to say. It's what gives you it's what gives you sight, and so we can talk about you know love. Love is a good evaluative outlook, but you know you realize what we're saying is be is more than what we're saying.
1: Right. It, if you hear, if you focus on what we're saying and want to parse that out and and just, you know argue with us about this word or that word, I would say that you're focusing on the signpost rather than where the signpost is trying to point to yeah and 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 hopefully as you listen as you know we keep talking about these things you start to be able to see things a little differently that you you can start to maybe get a different perception of something or or that you can start training yourself to see things a little differently and to see things more like jesus not that we have this all figured out cuz we don't um well at least i don't travis might but um, that's what, why we keep pounding this because getting to our perceptions, changing our perceptions, seeing the world as Jesus sees the world that changes everything and makes, makes the difference for everything. And, and with these philosophers, we're trying to say, it's not just Christians who realize that the perception is foundational. Other people think so too. Other and other people think we have, have told us that relationship is important. Other people have, have pointed in this direction, whether they realize they are pointing at Jesus or not is a whole other discussion, but our, I mean, we beat this drum because it's an important drum. And hopefully as you continue to listen, you'll embrace the importance of that drum too. Amen. And also Plato's in heaven. (laughs) Another discussion for another time. <laughs> right. Okay.
0: Well, I, th- I thank y'all for listening. Um, we may do more. I would love to just do a series, almost like a, almost like a class through Plato, through Nietzsche, through so on and so forth. I have to do Nietzsche sometimes so you can understand why a Christian thinker loves Nietzsche so much. And Joel has his, you know, kind of sort of specialties as well that we could talk about. But for today, we're all done. Uh, Hopefully you learned something. If you have any questions or thoughts, please let us know. If there's anything you want us to talk about, please let us know. We'd love to respond um, and maybe do a podcast on it.
1: So for now, this is Travis. This is Joel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.